It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And speaking of Ottawa, she's back. Caroline O'Neill is our Element FM Ottawa news reporter at 95.7. Caroline brings us her Parliament Hill perspective and has been doing a weekly election update here on Moment of Truth with us. And now uh, we are into our final couple of weeks as we head into the federal election for October 21st. And she's on the line again to try and help us bring some clarity into the candidates, their platforms, the issues they're working with, and if those, some of those things are working for or against them. Caroline O'Neill, uh, uh, do you have a crystal ball? that can help us make some sense of the six party leaders and, more importantly, help people understand what the heck this election is all about? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. But I wish I had a crystal (laughs) ball because then I would know what is going to happen on the 21st. And things just still seem so close that Mm. I I don't know. I think I flip-flop a lot. I think definitely watching the debate also caused that a little more. So the only mm. thing I would even venture with a crystal ball at this point is I'm thinking a minority is on our horizon. Right. But, I mean, with two weeks to go, who knows? Yeah. Now, uh, Caroline, you had a very unique perspective, speaking of the debate, because you were actually there. That's correct. It was an incredible experience. I've never been to a debate before, and it was really neat to kind of take in a part of history. So I was at the Canadian Museum of History on Monday, and I was telling you, um, David, before we started chatting, that I you weren't allowed to have your phones on you, so I wasn't checking Twitter. And because I do the morning show, I left the debate and went straight to bed. So the only perspective I had yesterday was my own. And it was really nice to kind of have that echo chamber and all of the political talk and rhetoric stopped for a little bit, and I mm. really just based it on what I was seeing and what I was hearing. Mm, that is interesting. It, it also speaks to social media and those other things that influence us and we're carrying around with us in our pocket. Um, but having said that, you woke up, you had this, uh, this fresh perspective, so to speak. Uh, what, what did you take away and what did you see and what did you, what did you get a sense of then from, from hearing the aftermath of all that? Yeah. So first of all, I think there were a few things I saw. I thought Jagmeet Singh had an excellent debate. I think that he really shone. I think that he he didn't let himself get pulled into some of the shouting and the talking over people. And because I was there, I could see that what he was doing was instead of engaging with shouting whenever people were kind of getting into that, he would actually flag down the moderator and wait for them to kind of call on him to insert himself into the situation. And I thought that was really smart because for people who are tired of politicians being at each other's throats, he, he came up with a really clever way to kind of disengage from that sort of behavior in the debate. Interesting. I think in terms of the environment, Elizabeth May did come across really well. You know, she really, she kept on referencing like science and scientific numbers and kind of, she was very strong and forceful. And again, as the Green Party, that's something you would want, I think, in your, in your Green Party leader. I would also say for Justin Trudeau, you know, I think this was his debate to lose. Um, you know, out of anyone, there are so many controversies surrounding him right now, and he's had a rough few weeks. But I do think that he actually came across better than I thought he was going to mm. Monday night. Mm. Okay. And uh, what about the other leader, Sheer? 
Well, I think in regards to Sheer, he was in a really tough situation. I've heard him speak before at events. Um, I've heard him speak a few times at the press gallery dinner, and I often think he comes across really well then. He's, you know, self-deprecating. He has a good sense of humor. He's a good public speaker. I found that debate night wasn't a great night for him with Maxime Bernier there. I think the problem was Bernier is so strong and forceful, and Sheer in that moment didn't come across as an equal opponent. And I think the other problem Sheer was facing was there were three progressives up against him, too. Mm. So it really did kind of seem like he was floundering a little bit in kind of finding where it was that he was standing, especially when Justin Trudeau made that comment that Maxime Bernier is saying publicly what Andrew Sheer <laughs> is thinking privately. Mm. I think that really didn't help his case at all. Mm. I do think that it was actually a benefit to have um, Yves-Francois Blanchette there, the leader of the Bloc Québécois. Because I think your average Canadian, especially outside of Quebec, really only knows about Quebec politics through a lens that the different party leaders want you to know. So I think your average Canadian knows about Quebec in regards to what the NDP wants you to know or what the Liberal Party wants you to know, what the Conservatives want to know. But I think it was good for people to hear from Blanchette on his own and start to formulate those opinions based on that. I also think he did deserve to be there because while nationally he might not be polling well, he does have 22% of support in Quebec, which is quite high. And, and, you know, I agree with you. I think it was great to have him there as well. And in, in fact, uh, I thought that because of his perspective and where he's coming from, as he said, I'm here to represent Quebecers and Quebecers only. Um, I thought that that he, you know, he had a very clear agenda. And so it, it made him a little fresher or a little more refreshing, I guess, in, in, in some ways than hearing you know, some of the other leaders and trying to decipher what they were saying and, and where they're coming from. And speaking of that, you know, you mentioned about the overlap and the, and the shouting back and forth and that kind of thing. That never works anyway. So what you were saying about Jagmeet Singh, yeah, very smart way to do it because when they both start gabbing, you can't pick out what they're saying to each other. It's just hogmash, you know, it's just a, just why bother doing that? Exactly. And I have to say, um, you know, from my friends who were tuning in. And for some of them, this was kind of the first federal debate they'd ever tuned into. They were really annoyed by that. They mm-hmm. didn't have time for the shouting. And so not only was it clever, like you said, David, I think what it was also signaling, especially to perhaps a progressive young voter, is I'm actually above this. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get in on this. I'm not going to kind of have the name calling and the shouting over it. I'm better than this. So I'm going to sit here and I'm going to find a way to still have my say, but I'm not going to engage in that sort of behavior. And, and he had a couple of great one-liners. <laughs> He did. I think the one of the night would definitely be the choice between Mr. Deny and Mr. Delay. I think that will definitely. And again, right, I wasn't seeing what was going viral. So I was kind of sitting there thinking to myself, what are the lines that are going to pop with viewers? And Mm -hmm. I remember when he said that, that definitely seemed like one that, you know, a a comms person was very proud to have crafted. Right. (laughs) And and, you know, the other thing is that uh, he did have a great uh, a couple of great lines that he I think I guess it was in the the indigenous people's debate, uh, I believe, when he, you know, he said, you'd, you know, you'd do anything to keep SNC-Lavalin out of courts, but you're taking First Nation children to courts. Bang. He, yeah, he had a great line with that, David. He was also the one who brought it back to Indigenous issues. Yeah. And I'd really like to kind of touch a little bit more on that specific um, part of the debate, because I think if we were to look at where the problems lay with the debate, I think that's where most of the problems were. Mm-hmm. So the debate was split into five different topics, one of which was Indigenous issues, another one was environment and climate change. And very quickly, it was actually Elizabeth May who introduced Perry Bellegarde's um, list for what he was looking for as priorities in this election. 
And from there, she brought up climate change. And that is fair. But the problem is that climate change and the environment had already been chosen as a separate topic. Mm. And very quickly, especially with Mr. Shear and Mr. Bernier, it did become a conversation about pipelines, about energy projects and about the climate. And it really moved away from some of those Indigenous issues. And there were so many other issues that should have been mentioned and they just didn't get that time. And it was Jagmeet Singh who did bring it back and kind of focus on the fact that there are other issues that are happening that matter to Indigenous communities that aren't solely about the environment. And I hear exactly what you're saying because there was other uh, other times when that also, because of the topics, uh, Pipeline I think was one of them, and that got uh, picked up by the Bloc, uh, who, who again uh, took it back to the provincial talk, you know, and about the provinces rather than about Indigenous affairs. Exactly. And I have to say, David, sitting in the audience, it was incredibly frustrating because there were cameras everywhere. And so you knew at some point you could appear on TV. And we had been told not to react. Now, not everyone listened to this. Um, but I was sitting there trying very hard not to react. But it was very frustrating watching the set, like the minutes tick away as the Indigenous issues were just getting left out of the conversation. And it was even more so frustrating when a little while later, essentially the same conversation was rehashed during the climate change mm. discussion. Mm-hmm. Certainly climate change is important, but I think that what happened Monday night is a very telling look at where we are in terms of reconciliation, but also very telling in terms of how the mainstream media treats Indigenous issues. I think <laughs> there was a better way that could have been handled. Uh, and, and speaking of that, how much weight do we put on, and it's kind of uh, off topic a little bit, but how much weight do we put on the moderator that was handling that particular section as well? You know, bring that conversation yeah. back to the, you know, the topic kind of thing. I mean, moderators' jobs are to moderate, right? And mm-hmm. I think we definitely saw very different styles. There mm-hmm. were some people, like I think Rosemary Barton had a really great night, and I think she had a tough job because she had a lot less time than the other moderators, but she stuck to her guns, right? Mm-hmm. People were not allowed to go over. She was giving people their time. Mm-hmm. And I think that that conversation should have been reframed. But even in terms of what you're bringing up about a moderator, David, APTN's Cheryl McKenzie did say that Aboriginal People's Television Network lobbied to have an Indigenous journalist as the moderator for Indigenous issues. And according to Mackenzie, instead, they were actually offered to have an APTN journalist hold the microphone and pass it on to audience to members of the audience who were asking questions, which Mackenzie found to be incredibly insulting and, quite frankly, rightly so. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and yeah, we've heard that and uh, there's lots of talk on social media about that as well. Exactly. And I think, again, for people who are watching that, it really did showcase that the media is not where it should be today when it comes to covering Indigenous issues. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, at one of the biggest high profile media events that we've had over the past few years, it was very apparent Monday night. Mm. Now, a couple of other lines that stand out for me. You mentioned uh, Elizabeth May, and, and I thought that uh, one line that I thought she was, she was you know, uh, I thought it was a great line about how she said, in terms of the climate and dealing with that, that the numbers with climate don't change, and we need some adults in the room to deal with this or to take some action. I thought that was a pretty good line. I thought it was a great line, and I also thought it was a really great callback to some of the action we've been seeing from children over the past few weeks. Mm -hmm. And I think certainly, um, you know, the rise of Greta Thunberg and the rise of climate change strikes and the work of Autumn Peltier Mm -hmm. are all really helpful to somebody like Elizabeth May. And I think she's also hoping that this would encourage more young people to see her party as a viable option. But then I also think, again, when you have people sitting there bickering and talking over each other and somebody says, we need adults in the room, what she's (laughs) kind of saying is, 
some of you may not be adults in this room. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I guess the one thing that, that kind of gets me about this, the climate issue, is that they, they seem to just turn it into another point. To, to talk mm-hmm. about. And, and it's not just another point. This is, this is something that affects all of us. And, and uh, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry. No, nope, go ahead. I, I agree with you because I think there were moments when Elizabeth May sounded very emotional, which I, I thought was a very interesting to see her as the only female to kind of talk in that way. But I think what she was doing was what you're saying, David, that she, she really just sensed the way she was talking about her children and talking about her future and, you know, saying that, with the liberals' goals, it'll be too late. She really did come across mm-hmm. in a sense that she is alarmed and she is concerned. And I think in a way she felt that she was ringing a bell for Canadians. If you care about this, she's kind of saying this election is our one shot. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember hearing uh, someone refer to her as coming across as angry, and I didn't necessarily agree with that. I, as you said, I thought she was passionate uh, and, and very strong in, in what she was trying to say. Uh, but I didn't feel she came across angry, and I thought, you know, the the way people sort of see things or take things away from these debates uh, sometimes makes you you wonder uh, about about what they're really seeing or what they're really looking at uh, in in terms of uh, giving their opinion on these. The other thing, though, I, I wanted to mention about May is that, and this is something she said, and and I was wondering what you thought of this. Uh, near the end, uh, when she said, um, you know, one thing that Canadians could take away from this is that, Mr. Shear, you're not going to be prime minister. And, and, and I thought, hmm, yeah. ah, I don't know if that one worked in your favor. And I was wondering where that came from. You know what? That was a really strong statement. Um, mm. I was pretty surprised to hear it. And again, I was sitting there trying hard not to react, kind of <laughs> hearing people make these, these big claims. Um, you know, if Elizabeth May isn't careful, she could find herself eating those words in two weeks, right? We don't yeah. know. The polls are very close. Yeah. Um, I think, now, I, I wouldn't say that's out of line for Elizabeth May. You know, she does not hold back. Right. And I think for people who are discovering her for the first time, that's going to be a love it or a hate it. Mm. I've heard from people in my family who are who really enjoy that part of her, and I've heard from other people who don't like that. So I think that's part of what she offers. I think it probably does come to from a place of real frustration, but when I was in the room during the SNC-Laughlin affair and she was questioning people like Jerry Butts, she would talk, or Michael Warnick, she would talk in a similar manner where she really was unapologetic. And if she felt that somebody had acted a certain way, she would say that. The other thing about Elizabeth May is she has made it incredibly clear that she is not interested in working with the Conservative government. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps part of what she was trying to show was that disinterest in the fact that she is very much committed to progressive issues. We saw that with the filibuster earlier this year where she stayed the entire time and really went after Cher for leaving during the filibuster and went after the Conservatives for starting it. And I think, again, that's part of that message. Now, that being said, if we go back to the crystal ball, maybe she has one that you and I don't know about, David, and maybe she does know how this is going to all end. But in an election this close, it was a bold statement to make. Yeah. Now, we're, we're, we're quickly running out of time, but it's fascinating and it's a great conversation I think we're having about this and, and, and one that's needed for, for not only ourselves, but for listeners and people uh, voting. And um, so it, I'm just wondering what you think about the idea that uh, because of Singh's success in this uh, and Elizabeth May, even to some degree, how this might split the vote in terms of uh, taking some votes away from, say, the Liberal Party uh, and helping to solidify that that uh, that conservative vote more. 
You know, and that's a really interesting frame of thought, David. So actually, Nanos released, Nick Nanos released a poll earlier today, and mm. it found that the liberals and conservatives were still virtually tied. Mm. But the NDP and the Green Party actually went down a little bit in regards to percentage points, which I have to say I was very surprised by. Mm-hmm. And that had numbers up until yesterday. Now, you bring up an interesting point about starting the vote, uh, splitting the vote. We saw this with strategic voting in 2015. I think perhaps Canadians have become so enthralled with the American democracy system that people forget that we do have legitimate parties. And if you want them to stay legitimate, and if you do not want us to become a two-party system, that does mean voting for those parties, right? Sometimes parties like the NDP and the Green Party don't necessarily run strong candidates and say a rural riding. I know people who are voting for the NDP and the Green Party in ridings where they quite frankly don't have a shot, but they're hoping that if the numbers are high enough, perhaps a stronger candidate would be selected next time. So I think that the people who are speaking that way about splitting the vote over to the Conservatives are speaking out of fear. And I think there's been a lot of fear-mongering in this particular debate. Mm. But I think for people who are passionate about the NDP or passionate about the Green Party or even passionate about an independent candidate, if you are passionate about them but choose not to vote for them, we could at some point become a two-party system. Mm. Yeah, yeah, good point. Now, um, uh, you know, again, we're short on time, but I'm wondering, uh, what do you think about the, the, the next debate then, the, one, the French debate that's coming up, and, and how that might be different or similar, or, or you know, what's, what are your thoughts? You know, I'm interested for this one. French is not everybody's first language, and it's a tough language to pick up. And I think somebody like Maxime Bernier, I think, will have a great night tomorrow night. I think, again, facing off with Andrew Scheer, I think Maxine Bernier will have an easier time landing barbs. I think he'll have an easier time talking over people. And I also think for Justin Trudeau, he'll probably have an easier time defending himself against Jagmeet Singh and Elizabeth May. And I think a lot of that does come down to comfort in language. French is a tough language if it's your second language. And it's certainly challenging when you're having a policy debate with questions you haven't been prepped for. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh the the other thing uh, is is that Jagmeet Singh was in Grassy Narrows. He was. He was there over the weekend, where actually Chief Rudy Turtle is running as a candidate for the NDP. Mm. And Jagmeet Singh made a very large announcement, saying that an NDP NDP government would be committed to ensuring all First Nations would have access to safe drinking water. And so, if you look at the numbers for that, the Parliamentary Budget Office says that that would cost at least one point eight billion dollars to solve the contamination. But there was one journalist who asked a question that had a lot of people, I think, a little upset about how it was phrased. And that was a journalist asked if he would be writing a blank check Mm. for Indigenous peoples for the water crisis. And, you know, Jagmeet Singh was not impressed with that question. And I saw many people, especially on social media, were unimpressed as well. Mm. Uh, I thought, although he had a good answer. He did. So he said, if Toronto had a drinking water problem, would you ask the same question? Yeah, exactly. Which I thought was, like you said, David, a great answer. And again, you know, I think one of the underlying themes of our conversation today is media and how we can and need to do better when it comes to Indigenous issues. And I think, again, you know, Jagmeet Singh makes a great point about Toronto. Mm. I was also thinking about it in terms of the survivors of thalidomide. I'm sure many mm. people remember that when, at the time, Minister Rana Ambrose announced the settlement for survivors of thalidomide, which was a drug for morning sickness that caused many babies in Canada to be born with different types of deformities. And the Canadian government did know 
about the problems with that drug. And I think it's a very similar case. And I don't recall people asking Rana Ambrose if there was going to be a blank check for the survivors of thalidomide. Mm. But somebody asked that this weekend. Yeah, yeah. Good point, uh, Caroline. Um, listen, you uh, did interview someone, and and it sounds like something that people should listen to to maybe uh, fill out more of the uh, aroundness of this election. Uh, some things that are getting perhaps a little glossed over, or people want to find out a little bit more about. Uh, and as we touched on today, quite a few things, Caroline. It's always a pleasure to have you on the air and and uh, do this with us. We look forward to next week. And then, of course, uh, it's down to the wire. It's uh, it's the last few days after that, uh, and, and the election follows. Thanks so much, David. Our pleasure. Thank you, Caroline. Caroline O'Neill is in Ottawa at 95.7, our sister station on Element FM, and she is always uh, happy to be here and bring us an update on the election. And as I said, don't go away. We'll be right back on Moment of Truth and Caroline's interview. Don't go away. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. You are listening in Toronto and Ottawa to Element FM. Colton Castile is a fellow with Future Majority, a nonpartisan organization encouraging millennials to use their power as the largest voting bloc this federal election. Castile spoke with Element FM reporter Caroline O'Neill about Future Majority's goal of walking 30,000 millennials to the polls in October, the issues that matter most to the young voters, and why some young people may not want to engage with our democratic system. Let's give it a listen. Colton, let's start things off by defining who is a millennial and who is a part of Generation Z. Yeah, so millennials and, and Generation Z um, make up about 37% of the electorate uh, this election and are folks about kind of the mid-30s under in Canada. Okay. And we hear a lot, especially when we talk about elections, that millennial voters could outnumber any other voting bloc in this election. But are they aware of their collective power as voters? I mean, absolutely not. I'd say I'd say in the past, a lot of young voters have held significant amounts of power, but haven't really had a reason to really take that power and hold it because of being fairly disillusioned with the state of politics. So um, that's really our mission is to is to ensure that young people are are uh, aware and, and grasping the the power that they have in, in this election. And we often hear at the same time that if this age group were to show up to vote, that is what would make the difference. That they could have all this influence over elections should they actually make it to the ballot. So, what are you doing over a future majority to encourage young people to make their way to polling stations come October? Yeah. So, like you said, it's a really exciting time. Um, I'd say, you know, for the first time in, in roughly about 100 years, young voters outnumber older voters in this country. So, you know, like we're, we're talking about, the millennials and Gen Z generation collectively has, has enormous power. But on top of having enormous power, we have really incredible bases of young people based out in colleges and campuses around this country that uh, haven't traditionally shown up in large numbers. And so we're changing that by talking to over 60,000 students throughout the campaign uh, collecting over 30,000 vote pledges in over 20 different ridings. Uh, we're going to be walking about 23,000 young people to the polls. Uh, and on my campus alone, I'm going to be talking to over 3,000 students. You know, I've already collected over 1,200 vote pledges. I'm aiming for about 1,800 by the time Election Day rolls around. Um, and then we're also going to try and walk, physically walk about 1,000 students to the polls. Um, and so all this campaign is really something that hasn't been accomplished on a scale of this size before with young people in Canada. Um, so it, it makes me really excited, and I know the rest of the team is very excited as well. 
So Colton, you're based out of Fleming College right now in Peterborough. What are some of the ways that you are engaging with students on campus? Yeah, so a lot of students at Fleming really are concerned about affordable rent. I mean, the vacancy rate here in Peterborough is uh, less than a half percent last time I checked, which is uh, incredibly distressing, especially for young people either looking to to buy their first home or even just get a a rental house. You know, we just had a crisis um, only a matter of weeks ago when a number of international students came out to to Fleming College um, for school. And there were literally hundreds, if not over a thousand young people uh, students who could not find a place to live. <laughs> um, and and that's kind of something that's pretty basic and nonpartisan across um, every young person who, whether they affiliate with a party or an ideology or not, you know, um, the rent and, and housing issue comes up quite often. And then, and then on top of that, I mean, economic insecurity is there. A lot of people are having, you know, trouble finding good jobs. Um, I think a lot of young people at Fleming have talked about the level of precarity that exists. Um, and, it, and it's common across cities and communities all around this country, not just uh, not just Fleming. I mean, people bring up, you know, their family members or friends or, you know, colleagues or associates who live in other communities across this country and, and, and face the same issues. Um, yeah, and, and I think the environment comes up quite often as well. I mean, young people are concerned about climate change. It's uh, it's a growing issue here on campus, even in, um, even in, in, in diverse communities, and, and everybody seems to have that in front of mind. So let's talk a little bit about some of these issues. So, you know, you mentioned that the economy is something that comes up quite a bit. When you're having these conversations with young voters, how do you make the link between the economy to the federal election? Yeah, I think a lot of young voters are quite more adept than uh, than the older generations give them credit for in terms of understanding the economy and understanding um, the challenges that we're, we're collectively facing. Uh, a lot of young people look at politics and see, you know, disillusionment, disillusionment because of the actions of politicians historically in this country. Um, they look at the election perhaps as an opportunity to push forward an agenda that actually tackles the gig, the gig economy and a lot of uh, precarious jobs that, that have arisen over the last number of years that young people are now just expected to pick up. You know, I, I think... It's, it's quite common with this with uh, this collective generation of millennials and Gen Z voters, as we talked about, that many of them have just accepted a new norm of working, you know, three, four different jobs. Maybe one is online, maybe one's on campus, maybe one's at, you know, the local fast food store. Uh, and they have to pick up all of these jobs that, you know, none of which have benefits, none of which have a pension, <laughs> none of which have any of these previous norms that used to exist and, and, and uh, be taken without a second thought for the for the previous generations in this country um, and it's and it's distressing for a lot of people so um, that is a, that's a that's a constant that's coming up for sure Colton you also mentioned the environment and that is one that we would typically more associate with Millennials and with the younger generation especially with the global climate strike coming up what sorts of conversations are you having about the environment yeah I mean young people are, are, are really closely attuned to the environment and are watching the mobilizations that are happening all across the world. But also, a lot of young people are, are, are really distressed by the actions that even what would be considered to be, um, you know, politicians that have pushed the envelope historically on climate change really have still have not done enough. Um, and so, you know, on top of having to balance these challenges of, of housing unaffordability and, and economic insecurity, Many young people look at the next 30 years and wonder if they'll have a planet to live on. 
<laughs> and so it, it's 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 not only um, incredibly frustrating and and uh, just you know upsetting when young people talk about the the leaders that are in power and what they've done to tackle this issue so far. Uh, but it's also, you know, a, a distressing effect, has a distressing effect on, on the mental health of young people. And, and several young people and students that I've talked to talk about, you know, thinking of, of climate consequences at least once a day, you know, the very least, you know, once every couple of days, people think about what will my country look like? You know, will I have to deal with uh, with an increase in vector-borne diseases across the country if I live close to the water? You know, where will I have to be displaced? Will my community be ravaged by wildfires? Um, we just saw Hurricane Dorian tear apart parts of Atlantic Canada. This is this is becoming a new norm, and, and young people are, are are really frightened by it. And those are some really heavy issues for young people to be carrying, but they're also issues that do impact all of us. Colton, I'd like to touch on something really interesting you said. You mentioned that other generations often don't give millennials credit for their awareness of issues like the economy. I'm wondering, can you touch on some other issues that you're hearing about when you talk with young voters? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's uh, it's interesting. It's it's quite it's quite diverse. Um, like I like you said, you know, and and we discussed the the economy does come up often in, in mostly in the jobs context and in um, what I would describe more as as um, as a benefits associated context too. A lot of a lot of young people dealing with that insecurity of of having to work multiple jobs because they can't afford you know to go to the dentist or or to deal with their prescriptions. But um, on top of that, I mean, I mean, like we like we discussed, the environment not just not just in a climate change context, but also uh, in a health context. You know, dealing with with clean air and water, um, folks are, are are looking at their communities and and not only the the diversity of of the ecology, but also the diversity of wildlife. Um, I think a lot of Canadians connect to to the to the land and, and the landscape of Canada as a as a as a place of uh, of admiration. Um, a lot of young people talk as well about about indigenous issues, about ensuring that we have uh, governments that prioritize reconciliation, um, and and uh, and and I mean, housing is 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 definitely something that I would say is is probably the most front of mind for young people uh, because it is so acutely at the forefront of 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 their daily lives. Um, I mean, dealing with that next rent check is is incredibly distressing as well. Now, Future Majority has some very large goals looking ahead to the election. And one of them you mentioned was that Future Majority is looking to walk 30,000 young voters voters to the poll next month. How is this going to happen? Yeah, so what's what's really cool about what Future Majority is doing is we're just we're just going to pick up and and literally walk with people physically. You know, my my day during advance polls and during election day is to just find students who haven't voted yet and walk with them and make sure that they cast their ballot. You know, we're, we're just looking to make sure that as many young people as possible show up. And we're going to be having many canvassers in all the, all the locations that we're based in to, to, to physically walk people to the polls. Um, we've also been, you know, like, as we've talked about collecting numbers of vote pledges. And so we've uh, delivered a, a ton of voter information to, to these young voters and, and help them kind of grow a little bit more awareness of, what are all the parties doing? How can they understand what what choice is best for them? What issues do they care about most, and 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 what would be most uh, most applicable for them when they when they cast their ballot? 
Um, one of the exciting things, you know, we're going to do is, is really we built out a number of large volunteer teams in a number of these campus, campuses all across the country. So there really is, in, especially in some cases, um, you know, 10, 20, 30, maybe more volunteers on a single campus who can then work in unison to deliver a ton of young people to the polls. You know, I would, I would certainly say that it's that we're even talking on a low ball in terms of saying a thousand students walking to the polls at Fleming alone. I'm, I'm thinking more, you know, hopefully two or three thousand. So, it's, it's, it's really just physically, physically taking those, those, uh, those folks there and, and, and making sure that they do vote. And the other thing that you've made mention, and so does Future Majority's website, is that this is a nonpartisan organization. But I'm wondering, how do you mm-hmm. keep things nonpartisan when you're having conversations in an election that is very polarized, and you're talking about issues that really do matter to people? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think for a lot of young people, and, and this is this is a commonality that stretches across almost every conversation I've had, is that young people really don't associate with parties the way that older generations do. I would say at Future Majority, we're really pushing past the era of partisanship and really into a new paradigm of issue-based politics. Um, we have a lot of young people talk about wanting a new era of democracy in Canada where young people can mobilize into a cohesive voting bloc that really just pushes the envelope on climate action, economic security, housing affordability, and so on. Um, a lot of young people look at the state of, as you, as you mentioned, divisive partisanship in this country and don't associate with it at all, or it just makes them disassociate from politics even more. They want to see action regardless of party. You know, many young people that I talk to will say, we genuinely do not care what party somebody is from. We just want to see action and results. And I think that is is really what defines this voting block, is that none of them associate or have a, a historical commitment for the most part, I would say at least, to to these these you know any of the major parties or the fringe parties, whatever whatever party it may be. Um, so it it is it is actually a little bit easier than you you may even think to, to for us to remain nonpartisan because most young people just resonate with the issues we're talking about and they're not you know really partisan issues <laughs> across the board, which is which is really uh, inspiring to hear most young people agree with. We're just talking about climate action. You know, climate change is nonpartisan. Economic security is nonpartisan. Affordable rent is nonpartisan, um, and we just continue to have those conversations and, and and really rally young people around that. I mean, what's exciting about Future Majority as well is is that we truly are building a youth movement that's unlike anything Canada's ever seen. I think holding true to that nonpartisanship is something that makes the movement more inclusive than anything that's been done in the past because we can appeal to every every person who's associated with any party, any person who's associated with any particular ideology and say, we have, some people may have differences, but across the board, we have more commonalities than differences and we can work together that way. One of the things that you touched on as well, Colton, is the idea that young voters are frustrated. They're frustrated with lack of action about the environment. They're frustrated with their economic situation. And they place a lot of those frustrations on what they're seeing as inactions from their federal party leaders. So mm-hmm. how would you explain to somebody as to why a young person might be apathetic this election? Why might they just consider not voting at all? Yeah, I mean, I think for, for us, what's most important is that we do empower young people to vote. Um, as far as as far as discussing why young people may be apathetic, I think young people in the past really haven't had a a good reason to vote uh, and that's you know that that's fair to say um 
a lot of the politicians who have either come into power or not, or opposition politicians, whatever, right? They, they've across the board really talked a big, ga- a big game, but not delivered. And that's led a lot of young people and, and, the, and many young people that I've had discussions with, even here, here in Peterborough, about, you know, being unhappy with, with um, the, the lack of, of, of genuine action from politicians or, or, or any kind of follow-up from them. Um, and so it's, it's incredibly understandable and, and, and fair for young people to feel disconnected at first. But what we really strongly believe is that if young people do vote and if enough young people show up en masse, it will not matter what party they vote for. What will matter is that every single politician will have to listen to what young people have to say because they will not have the votes to win in a riding. And that's, again, a nonpartisan thing. It's across the board. I mean, and no party will be able to compete if enough young voters show up. And that's really what we're trying to rally young people around is that you hold the power. And if we are cohesive around these these key issues that we we know are nonpartisan, then you will be able to change the way that politics is run and and really change uh, the core nature behind what causes you to be apathetic. Colton, as somebody who is working to engage with students and meet them in a variety of places, what role do you see social media playing in this election? Yeah, it's a great question. Social media is huge, for sure. Um, I think a lot of young people access their news and information that way. Um, you know, we, we've seen the consequences that that can have in in uh, in, in many democracies across the world. So there's 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 both good and bad. But um, in terms of in terms of young people's Young people engaging uh, through social media. I mean, that's that's definitely a uh, a prime vehicle through which we communicate with with young voters. Um, we try to to share information as accessibly and easily as possible through social media, and it has a big impact. I mean, a lot of young people look to their social media platforms to inform them of you know what are the parties proposing, what are the parties saying, um, what are third party organizations communicating, and how can I understand the landscape of politics? Uh, it, it's it's really a a diverse approach in terms of being able to not only you know communicate through seeing speeches, but then also look directly at a platform, and um, that's something that we're, we're we're certainly tapping into. I mean, there's a there's a huge base of young people who engage with us on social media in places where we don't have organizers, and that's been a, a, another really rallying block for our movement. You know, in this election, we're also seeing the rise of some really different figures. We're seeing the People's Party of Canada gaining a lot of steam. We're also seeing somebody like Faith Goldie having influence on this election. I'm curious, what impact do you see the far right or the alt right having on young voters in October? Hmm. Well, I mean, in terms of our in terms of our nonpartisanship, obviously, we we remain committed to to being nonpartisan with young voters. Um, what I would say, obviously, is that we are, uh, you know, uh, completely against intolerance and, and, and racism and that for young people, it's, it's a commonality across the board. Most young people, frankly, I, I suppose every young person that I've talked to at Fleming, um, it does not does not adhere to or embrace any principles of, of, of racism or intolerance that uh, could be espoused by by leaders who simply try to capitalize on on fears. I mean, a lot of a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric or um, you know hateful racialized rhetoric comes mostly from economic anxieties that people are trying to exploit. So 
when we talk to young people, we just discuss the reality of, of where we can work to build a better Canada. And we really see the opportunity in not only taking action on housing affordability and, and economic security, but also uh, on those environmental and, and, and social issues that matter to all of us that, that you mentioned. And so I think young people collectively are, are hyper-aware and uh, do not do not subscribe to, to hateful ideologies in Canada. And so nonpartisanship is clearly a very important keystone of future majority. But if you were engaging with a young person who is espousing far-right or alt-right ideologies, does future majority have a plan in place or a protocol in place for having those discussions? I mean, to a certain degree, young people who may espouse those issues are are entitled to to have obviously their own vote at the ballot box, as as, as you mentioned, as a nonpartisan organization. Um, for me, if I'm if I'm having a discussion with with an individual voter, I'm happy to sit down with them and really try to get to the root of why they may feel a certain fear or why they may feel a certain way, um, we, we will not, um, you know, subscribe to, to any kind of ideologies or, or hateful rhetoric like that. So if a person is, is really steadfast in, in their belief, then um, I'm happy to step away from that person. But uh, to a certain degree, we want to we wanna push against uh, hateful, hateful intolerance uh, at the same time and, and, and be open to having a, a conversation. And, and that's part of my role as an organizer as well, is to sit down with, with folks and, and um, try to find common ground. But if, if there isn't any common ground to be found, then, then certainly uh, I'm happy to walk away from that conversation. And is that a conversation that you have had to have in your work so far? Very, very rarely. Um, I'd say only about once out of more than, oh man, more than 3,000 conversations probably that I've had over the past couple of weeks. So it's, it's, it's close to never for me. What are some resources that you would offer to people who are looking to educate themselves about election issues as they start thinking about who has their vote in October? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a ton of, there's a ton of resources. Uh, Future Majority is actually working on uh, a few resources that we'll be launching very, very soon. Um, we are going to be providing young voters with a number of, of, uh, of resources surrounding how to vote, where to vote, you know, polling locations, um, also principles of, of, of what all the parties are doing on every every major issue. Um, we'll be summarizing a ton of that information, but we're just going to be releasing it uh, very soon. It hasn't, hasn't been fully announced quite yet. So if people did want to find those resources, where could they find them once they're ready? Totally. So they'll be, they'll be on our website, and we'll be launching a, a really large social media campaign as well to promote it. Um, also, anybody who's already pledged to vote through us will be will be getting that directly in their inbox, and then we'll be um, we'll be pushing physically on campus as well to make sure that uh, that every possible voter is informed and, and working with with partners to uh, to make sure that we disseminate that information as quickly and rapidly as possible. Okay, and so people could find you at futuremajority.ca. That's right. Yeah. Perfect. And finally, you're out here. You're doing this work. You're trying to encourage young people to vote. So, Colton, why do you think that the youth vote matters? Hmm. Great question. I, I think the youth vote matters because young people have more power than many of them know. And we believe very, very, very strongly that this is an opportunity like no other, like something that Canada has, has never seen before. Uh, and if, if, young motor, vote, no, if young voters mobilize in a, in a cohesive and, and, and 
large enough way around the issues that matter most to us, then no politician will be able to ignore us. No party will be able to ignore us. Every party will have to up their game on young people's issues. Otherwise, they'll never have a chance of, of winning another election.